Hey, listen, if you're here for the first time today, thanks for being here. My name is Mike. I'm the lead pastor here at MCC. And uh, hey, I, if, if you're here for the first time, I would love to meet you. Uh, I'll be right up front after the service today. Please come up if you would, if you're okay with that, and introduce yourself. I'd love to, get, love to get to meet you. And if you're watching online, thanks for joining us there. I hope that what we're doing here is encouraging your walk with Jesus. Uh, so listen, we've taken a couple of weeks. This is the second week to talk about two books at the end of the New Testament. They are both one chapter long, so we really don't put chapters. There's typically not chapter numbers. There's just verse numbers with them. Uh, so we're referring to them as postcards because they're so short. However, do not mistake their length with power. Last week, we looked at probably the most explosive letter Paul wrote. Today, we're going to look at another small, short message with a, or short letter with a huge message. But it got me to thinking this past week, and so I'm going to ask for a show of hands. How many of you at any point in your life have ever sent or received a postcard? Sent or received a postcard. Keep your hands up if you've ever received or sent one. Now, let me ask this. So keep your hands up. We'll just have them drop here as we go along. How many of you have sent or received one in the last 10 years? Look at that. Okay, five years. Three, two, one. Okay, you know, I've got to tell you, as an old person, because we're talking about real postcards, uh, not electronic ones. So as an old person, what we would call real. Uh, <clears throat> I'm, you know, I've wondered what has happened. I can't remember the last one I sent, but I do remember the best one I ever received. Uh, it was a postcard from hell. And uh, what had happened was a group from here at MCC had gone on a cruise to the Bahamas, and there's a town there called Hell. And uh, I've just, I, they got the biggest kick out of that. And I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase to hell and back. We had a group from MCC do that. So uh, <laughs> I just think that's incredible, right? So we're wrapping up today with a postcard from a guy, uh, uh, from a man named Jude. Jude, which in Hebrew is Judah. In Greek, New Testament Greek, it's Judas. But not to be confused with Judas Iscariot, who betrayed uh, Jesus, as a matter of fact, Jude begins by Im immediately identifying himself, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. So he points right at James uh, because he was a, he, James was one of the leaders in the main church, the mothership in Jerusalem to quasi quote Ron Burgundy. I don't know how to put this, but James was kind of a big deal. People knew him. Right. And by the way, if you know who Ron Burgundy is, shame on you. Uh, repent. <laughs> Uh, here in a bit. So what you may not know is that both James and Jude were half-brothers of Jesus. Uh, so we're about to celebrate the birth of Christmas here, not, or not uh, the birth of Christmas, the birth of Jesus at Christmas not too long from now. So it's the story of Jesus's virgin birth to Mary. But Matthew tells us in his gospel that Mary and Joseph also had other children. Uh, and in chapter 13, he tells us that one of the four sons named in his gospel's name is Jude. Now, here's what I find interesting about this guy. No, actually, none of his family believed in Jesus until after his resurrection. And it's after his resurrection that some of his family members, not, they not only believe, but they, but they become leaders in the early church. Jude becomes known as a traveling teacher and missionary. And here's, I tell you all of that so I can point this out to you. He could have said, I'm Jesus's brother. That's name dropping. I'm Jesus's brother, but he chose to identify him. Do you see how I said as Jesus's servant, which should say something to us about how we identify ourselves. So let me just ask this. Judas saying my brother is the savior of the world. 
I'm his servant. So let me ask you this. Are we children of God? Would you identify yourself, and you can answer this out loud, please. Would you identify yourself as a child of God? Yes, we would identify ourselves that way. And that speaks very loudly, by the way, child of God talks about how we perceive ourselves, okay? Would you identify yourself as a servant of the kingdom? Okay, I, I ask that because this speaks loudly to not only how we perceive ourselves, but it speaks even more loudly to how those outside the church perceive us as well. And if you want to know if you're a servant of the kingdom, the way to find out is, are you serving? Because if you're not serving, you're not a servant, and by the way, you can call yourself whatever you want to, but people outside the church, if you're not serving, they don't care what you say. It's not who you are, and we need to be careful with that. So uh, let's take a look at verses 1 to 4. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James, to those who have been called, uh, uh, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, Although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. So right out of the chute, Jude says, this is a short letter, but he says, I really wanted to send you this encouraging note about your faith, my faith, our salvation, heaven, just the whole package and all that goes with it. But instead, I have to tell you, we are involved in a battle for the very heart of the church. As a matter of fact, that's so important. Write that down, please, on your notes. Uh, I am in a fight for the very heart of the church. Uh, and I need you to know why. Verse 4. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and they deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. We have to contend for our faith. We have to fight for what we believe because there are those who will worm their way into the church. In, in that day, he's saying they have wormed their way into the church and they pervert the grace of God. Look at how I put it. They change the grace of God into a license for immorality how they live. So on your notes, if you would write this down, really important. I fight for the very heart of the church by how I live my life. God's grace, listen, it's not just what we say we believe, it's how we live what we believe because God's grace demands more than a Sunday morning response. It demands more than a before the meal, before you go to bed response. It, it demands a whole life, our entire life Response, And I say that because Jude says that some of the people were taking God's love, his forgiveness, and they were abusing it. They twisted the truth. They threw out the rules. And they said because God loves everyone, which we'll stop for a moment. Let me just make sure we're all on the same page. We do believe God loves everyone, right? Okay. Now, I, of course he does, but I want to be real clear. He loves everybody. Everybody. It's a big, inclusive word. A couple weeks ago, my daughter sent me a quote. It's on your notes from Barbara Brown Taylor. The only clear line I draw these days is when my religion tries to come between me and my neighbor, I will choose my neighbor. Jesus never commanded me to love my religion. That's just to point this out. Jesus loves everybody, those who follow him and those who don't. He died for all of us because everyone in this room at one point or another 
didn't follow Jesus. And he died for us before we ever followed him. To be clear, and I hope this helps with this, I added another quote. Rick Warren, pastor out in California, uh, shared, and I've shared this before, but it's so huge for the culture in which we live today. I want to make sure you heard this again. Our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. That must be true of you. The second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both of those are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. So Jesus said in John chapter 8, to the Jews who had believed him, he said to them, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We're fighting for this truth, Jude says, in the church, not just in the first century, but in the 21st century, because the truth is under attack. So I asked Mayor Church, Mayor Church, if you would come on up, I asked him to come on up because of something that happened uh, in the year 2000. Would you welcome Mayor Church to the platform? Yeah. <coughs> so, thanks, Mayor. So uh, 19 years ago now, uh, uh, in the year 2000, Mayor Church declared uh, the year of the Bible in Miamisburg. And so uh, talk about how that, if you would, how that came about and then what happened because of that. For the record, I like mounds parties. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Unbiblical. All right. <laughs> it was 1999, about uh, in December of 99, Orville and Evelyn Nichols, who were the representatives of the American Bible Society, came to me and they said, would you uh, declare the year 2000, the year of the Bible? I said, I'd be happy to. And I did, and first couple of weeks, nothing happened. Then all at once, I get a letter from the ACLU that says that you need to rescind that proclamation. Well, I said, there's no way in the world. The world. Sure. <laughs> I was going to use the right. uh, town you visited. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no that, way in the Cayman uh, Islands, right? Gotcha. <laughs> okay. Um, there's no way in the world I'm going to do that because uh, I believe in what I uh, uh, signed. So um, the letters kept coming, and each time they got a little bit stronger. This went on for months, and it became not only a Miamisburg issue, but it became across the country. I had letters coming in from 37 different states supporting what I had done. And I was on talk radio, two, two stations in California, one in Texas and one in Georgia. I was on the monologue of the David Letterman show that a mayor named Church declared the year of the Bible. <laughs> and uh, even invited to the Today Show. Well, He's not going to tell you. He sissied out on that because he wanted to, he, there was someone. Who was in this that you invited to go with you? Well, the law director. The law director. I was ready to go. Right. He said, I, there's I no way I'm going to New York yeah. and being on that show. If anybody knows me knows I'm a ham, and I, you know, I would have been there. But the law director says, there is no way I am going <laughs> to sit there against a 
a team of ACLU lawyers and argue the point. So I know Judy was worried because there was talk they were going to sue me personally, and she didn't want to lose her house. Right. Well, I didn't either for that matter, but uh, <laughs> uh, the – At uh, that point, you were in the doghouse anyway, so right. who cares what yeah. – no, th and that was a very real threat that you all could potentially yes. lose your house. The final letter, letter come that said you will rescind the proclamation by a certain date. Well, there was uh, several of the ministers in town that I uh, um, reached out to on many occasions for advice. And uh, that was Reverend Swint and... Uh, Mark McCain from the Church of God, and Steve Spurgeon, Steve Spurgeon and then my own pastor, Mike mm -hmm. Couch. And they knew what I was going through, and they said, Dick, we understand that you have to do what you got to do. Now, when they set out, they were going to, the goal was they were going to give away 800 Bibles. Uh, during the year. As a result of all this, 8,000 Bibles were given away uh, during that time. So we had to um, call a press conference because the final letter said, you will do it or we're going to sue the city and yourself. City manager and the law director came on my office, as I said, and said, you got to do it. We don't have the money as a city to get in that kind of lawsuit. So I uh, reluctantly, we called a press conference. But in the meantime, God's will was being answered another way. Uh, Pastor Spurgeon at the Baptist Church they wrote a proclamation that said Dick Church private citizens believe in the year of the Bible and all the things that were in that proclamation. They said, take it back to your law director. Make sure that you th he thinks this is okay. I did. He gave his blessing. And... So we called the television stations, and I still felt bad. I, I kept remembering about Peter denying Jesus three mm -hmm. times. You, you said that was the rough, when you were telling oh, us the, the story, the roughest decision you've ever made. In 28 years, that was the roughest decision I ever made. And, uh, but anyway, we called a press conference. I reluctantly re, uh, rescinded that proclamation. And then I immediately signed this new proclamation as Dick Church individual. It's almost, well, it said almost the same thing as the one that I uh, uh, had written. There was one word that probably, if I would have left out of the proclamation, one word would have probably kept all this away. At the very end of the proclamation, I asked all citizens yeah. of Miamisburg, to support the year of the Bible. If I would have left all out, I don't think they would have had ground to stand on. But the upside is we have sneaky Baptists in our community. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, so. Yes. 
But uh, that was the uh, roughest decision in, his, in the 28 years I was mayor. So I just want you to know, when he told this story a few months ago in our ministerial meeting, he comes to all of our ministerial meetings, not, not because he's looking for political clout. He's coming because he's a man of God. And he told this story, and when you said, I'd never heard part, I've heard some of it, but the part that got me was when you said, this was the roughest decision I've ever made in my life. And uh, I felt like Judah, or I felt like Peter denying Jesus in the garden. I thought, man, I need to make sure people hear that, because that's how we need to feel. That needs to be our experience with God's word. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, appreciate you coming up. Yeah. We have to contend for the faith. That's, that's what we're talking about. That type of love for God's word and, and uh, for what the power that it has. And because what Jude is talking about, obviously, is still happening today. So look at what he says in verse 4 again. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people. They pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality, and they deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. There were people in Jude's day who said that because God is love and God loves everyone, he affirms every lifestyle and he overlooks sinful behavior. He just wants everyone to be happy. They believe that because they are forgiven and have God's spirit that now they can do whatever they want to with their life and they deny Jesus by rejecting his teaching and his authority. Does that sound familiar to you? Because i got to tell you, it's not new, but it's still alive today. And rather than asking what God wants in his word, there are people today who will decide what they believe and then go looking for a church that will teach them what they have decided that they believe. Rather than submitting to the authority of Jesus, they find preachers who will affirm their conclusions. And to be sure, you will always be able to find someone who agrees with you or who at least agrees that your opinions are right for you. Your truth is good for you. My truth is good for me. There are people who believe that. And rather than us modifying our beliefs and our behavior to conform to God's ways and God's will, the temptation is to find someone who will just say, listen, you're just fine the way you are. You don't need to change a thing. And this will probably not surprise you, but there are people in our culture today who don't believe in truth anymore, at least the idea of absolute truth. Absolute truth being, of course, that this truth is true for all people of all times, regardless of circumstances or what day it is. According to a Barna Research poll done just a few years ago, only one-third of American adults believe that moral truth is absolute. That means that two out of every three adults believe that morality is negotiable according to our circumstances which, by the way, goes for integrity, loyalty, honesty, and sexual purity. And that way of thinking, adults, has now made it into the lives of our teenagers. Chip Ingram uh, uh, quoted a 2019 survey, so just this year, that 91% of teenagers don't believe in absolute truth. That means 9 out of every 10 teenagers believe that ethics are decided by circumstances or their own code of conduct, not by God. You know why Jude says we need to contend for the heart of the church? He gives three examples, but they all point the same direction. God is a God of love, yes. God is a God of mercy, yes. God is a God of grace, yes. 
He's also a God of justice. And at some point, we will be held responsible for our decisions when we disobey God, verses 5 to 7 in this letter. Though you already know all this, so he's talking to Jewish people because he's getting ready to point to the Old Testament, and he's saying, you already know all of these stories, all these references I'm about to make. He said, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. So he's talking about the second book of the Bible, Exodus. Most of us are familiar with that story. God calls Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt through a series of plagues that he sent to convince Pharaoh and the Israelites uh, of who he was and to release the Israelites from bondage. Nine awful plagues, and Pharaoh kept saying no. The tenth plague was the death of the firstborn son of everyone in Egypt, even Pharaoh's, and finally he let them go. And it was an exodus unlike anything the world had ever seen before or has seen since. Hundreds of thousands, some scholars speculate, millions of people, slaves, were delivered. And yet the very, the, every time things got tough, the Israelites complained. And please don't hear that I would have been any different. I'm not sure that I would have been. I'm not sure that you would have been. But listen, they complained about everything. They complained about the food. They complained about the water. They complained about the heat. They complained about the Egyptians. Their unbelief, their lack of trust in God to do what he said. When they get to the edge of the promised land, they send the spies in to check the land out. This wasn't about a vote, whether they wanted to do it or not. Just go see what the land is like. And yet they didn't trust God, and it ultimately led to their punishment because God declared that an entire generation of adults would wander in the wilderness for 40 years and die and never go into the promised land, but their children would be allowed to enter the promised land. But he punished their disobedience, verse 6 in the book of Jude. The angels, and the angels who do not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Even the angels, Jude's writing here, even the very beings that God created to serve in heaven were punished for their rebellion. And we don't have any one place that, that tells all that happened when Lucifer, the archangel, rebelled against God. He became jealous, tried to usurp God's authority. But he and his angels that followed him were cast out of heaven. So Lucifer or Satan, and his angels, what we now today know as demons, their place of prominence in heaven did not keep them from being punished. Peter would write this, right? If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but he sent them to hell, he put them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. So even the angels were not exempt. Verse 7 in the, book of, in the letter to Jew, of, to, of Jude. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Back to the very beginning of the Bible again, Genesis 19. Abraham and his family live uh, on the plain in the land of Canaan. Lot and his family were living by the Jordan River, along the Jordan River, uh, by these two cities called Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe you've heard of them. The people there were totally corrupt. Two angels go to visit Lot and his family. And they welcome them into their home. But when the men of the town of Sodom find out that they're there, they come to rape the angels. And God protects the angels and Lot and his family once they had escaped. And then burning sulfur rained down on those cities in the plains because God was punishing their depravity. Jude is building this case. Again, God is a God of love and God is a God of mercy and grace. But he's also a God of justice. And if people refuse to repent, there will be 
consequences. And Judas saying these false teachers who have worked their way into the church are examples of this very same kind of unbelief and rebellion and immorality. In fact, just a few verses later, he compares the rebellion to two men in the old, uh, three men in the Old Testament, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Cain, all the way back in the book of Genesis, very one of the first stories, uh, his sin was jealousy, led to murder. Do you know who Cain murdered? Abel, right, led to the absolute worst Dixie Riddle Cup in the world. How long did Cain hate his brother? As long as he was able. Worst, worst joke. That, that joke itself is a sin, I think. An abomination, right? Balaam's sin was betrayal. He sold out the Israelites for money. Korah's sin was rebellion, rebellion against Moses, ultimately against the authority of God. And again, Jude is simply clarifying that God punishes those who know the truth but continue to defy him. It's how you live your life. Jude uses some other harsh images uh, of how these false teachers, it's not just their own lives, but they affect other people's lives around them. So not only are these false teachers like the Israelites and like fallen angels and like the men of Sodom and Gomorrah, not only are they like Cain and Korah and Balaam, the three traitors from the Old Testament. Look at verses 12 and 13. These people are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves, their clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead, their wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Again, pulling images from the Old Testament. Ezekiel 34 says they're like shepherds who take care of themselves and don't feed the flock. What do you do when you hire someone to take care of your flock and they don't do it? You fire them. In Proverbs 25, they're like clouds without rain. They, they promise life and refreshment, but their promises are empty. They're all talk and no substance. Isaiah 57, they're like trees without fruit. Now, maybe like me, you have trees in your yard that are not fruit-bearing trees. They're there for shade. They're there, you know, to be ornamental or something like that. But if you own an orchard and your trees are supposed to produce fruit and they're not, they're actually taking nutrients from other trees that are trying to produce the fruit that you expect from them. What do you do with the tree that will not produce fruit when it's supposed to? You keep yourself warm in Ohio during the winter with it. That's what you do, right? They're like the waves that are out of control. You let these false teachers into the church, and they are going to bounce you around like a boat caught in a storm. You could get seasick at the least and killed at the most. They're like stars that wander around, and I don't know about you, so every once in a while I'll go out and just look up because it's kind of cool to see the stars. But in the first century, stars were compasses at night for them. They knew where they were and how to get where they were going by following the stars. But if the stars just roamed around at night throughout the sky, listen, they would be useless for navigation. Don't you dare set your course on what they have to say because who knows where you're going to end up. Verse 16, these people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves. They flatter others for their own advantage. Verses 17 to 19, Jude says you shouldn't be surprised. The apostles warned you about them. And I've put on your notes where Peter and John and Paul all wrote about false teachers. And they're only pointing back to what Jesus said in the Gospels. It's why we have to contend for the faith. Even today, the question becomes how do we do that? 
And Jude answers it for the church in his day and for the church in our day. Verse 20. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. So this may be one of these that Jude talks about, may be your next step in your faith journey. But here's the first one. I will fight for the very heart of the church by living what God says to me through the Bible. I will live what his word says in my life. On your notes, we interpret our lives through the lens of God's word. We don't interpret God's word through the lens of our lives because we can make the Bible say whatever we want it to. You lift a verse here, you lift a verse there, and you can make the Bible say exactly what you want. Listen, this is the rest of that whole life response. I'll fight for the very heart of the church by living what God says to me through the Bible, and I know what the Bible says by spending time in it. If we get confused by someone else because they're saying something that seems familiar but we're not real sure, it could be because we're not spending time in the Word ourselves trying to figure it out. Pet peeve moment. People misquote John 8.32. It drives me crazy. They love John 8.32 because Jesus says, truth sets you free. Absolutely. Truth is going to set you free. Whatever that truth is, it will set you free. And that's great news for you because what's true for you is true for you. And what's true for me is true for me. And you've heard people say that. It's my truth. Actually, what Jesus said in John 8.31 clears up what he meant in John 8.32. To the Jews who had believed in him, he said, if you hold to my teaching." If you know what I'm saying and you do what I'm saying, you're really my followers. Then, at that time, when you do those things, you will know the truth and that truth will set you free. So part of our fight is to actually spend time reading and reflecting what God is saying to us so we know how to live it out every day of our life. That may be someone's next step because you're not spending time in God's word. I want to encourage you to do that. Or maybe your next step is this. Uh, Jude talks about this. I will fight for the very heart of the church by praying. I will ask God for guidance in my own life. I will not pretend to have it all together because I don't. I will not pretend that I, don't, I do not struggle with sin because I do. And I will confess my own sin struggles and I will ask God every day for guidance in my life. For the I don't know how you pray when you pray. I hope you pray every day. But I will tell you, part of my prayer includes what I've got on my schedule that day. God, I know I've got these meetings. I know I've got these appointments. Please help me to be wise. Help me to prepare well. Help me to speak well. Help me to, to be the man that you need me to be in those meetings and in those appointments as I meet with people. But you know what? I have appointments I am unaware of when my day starts. People come into the office Something happens, a tragedy, someone needs something. I run into someone at the gas station. I run into somebody. I get a phone call from a friend whose mom has died, and I'm, I'm, I need to respond in some way. And so part of my prayer to God is also, please help me be wise with the conversations I have no idea I'm about to have today because I know I'm going to have them, and I have no way to prepare for them other than you. Please help me today. I need your 
help, and I pray that every day. So I would ask that you would do the same thing and pray for yourself, and I would ask you to pray for the leaders of the church. Someone sat in my office this past week, and they, as we were talking about other things, just out of the blue, they said, I just want you to know I pray for you every day. I can't tell you what that meant to me. And I would ask that you pray for the leaders of our congregation. One more, it might be your next step in your faith. I'll fight for the very heart of the church by not giving up on people. Jude says, be merciful to those who doubt. Is it any wonder that people have questions and genuinely don't know what to believe because the culture is shouting exactly opposite of what God's word says for them to follow? God says, go this way, and the world says, no, 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 do whatever you want, go that way. And they honestly, genuinely don't know. And so we will fight for our friends who do not hear the voice of Jesus, can't hear the, wor- the voice of Jesus, won't hear the voice of Jesus uh, speaking love and grace into their lives. Do you not know people like that? Because some of them used to be part of the church. And the same thing happened in this year that happened in the first century. They heard these other voices that confused them and they got pulled away. Show mercy mixed with fear. Be merciful, not judgmental, not accusatory, not angry, not fighting. This isn't about an argument. This is about loving people back to Jesus and his voice of grace. That's the kind of church that we want to be. And I will tell you, we are in a fight. We are in a fight for the very soul of the church in our culture today. Please be willing to fight through the truth of his word, on your knees in prayer, and for the sake of your friends who are struggling to know the truth. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we love you very much. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for helping us to hear your voice at times, even when, honestly, Father, we we had other voices calling out to us, and we didn't know. And a friend spoke truth to our lives, reminding us of what you have said to us. And so, God, we pray just a word of thanks for that friend who helped us. May we be that friend in someone else's life. As your church, may we be willing to stand for your word, your truth, and to live out your love and your grace and your mercy in this life so that we can help others who were just like we were come to you. God, we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus.